Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and Fine Woodworking Editor, Tom McKenna. And with me this episode, our Executive Art Director, Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Special Projects Editor, Matt Kenny. Hello, everyone. Our Web Producer, Ben Strano. And Jeff Rose, our Video Manager. He's being quiet. Um, before we get rolling, I have to take care of some business. With the shopping season in full swing, it's a great time to take advantage of Taunton's holiday sale. Don't miss dozens of fine woodworking project plans for less than $5 each and savings up to 80% on your favorite woodworking books and DVDs. To take advantage of these deals, go to tauntonstore.com. That's tauntonstore.com. Also, the registration is now open for Fine Woodworking Live 2017, which is set to take place April 21st to 23rd at the Southbridge Hotel and Conference Center in Southbridge, Massachusetts. Now is the time to take advantage of our early bird pricing. Register before January 15th, and you'll save 130 bucks. For details and to sign up, go to finewoodworkinglive.com. I'm not sure exactly what is going on outside <laughs> behind us. But so, something happened. <laughs> something about kissing something a goat. Something, <laughs> there was someone, a sign that said kiss a goat. There was a kiss a goat sign that just went past our window. <laughs> we, <we're>, oh, <laughs> this is not Good Morning America. <laughs> All right, now that the protest has subsided, let's get to the questions. <laughs> the first one comes from Evan. My question regards sharpening stones and each of your opinions on what to buy. I currently have the King Combination Stone, 1,000, 6,000 grit. I'm looking to add an additional stone and or replace the King in the near future. What would you suggest? Purchasing an 8,000 grit Shapton Ceramic Stone and using the King Combo Stone, replacing the King Stone with the Shapton 8,000 and 1,000 grit stones, or purchasing a 12,000 grit Shapton and keep using the King Combination Stone and replace it later. Well, Ooh, one of the problems <clears throat> is when you start to mix and match your brands, um, the grits may not correspond directly to each other. For instance, uh, Japanese stones like the King, um, that 6,000 grit King stone is actually really pretty fine. Um, I'd say it's probably the equivalent to a Norton um, 8,000 grit or a Shapton, probably maybe 10,000 grit because Shaptons mm -hmm. are actually grade coarser than Norton's. So, um, you know, so the short answer is it's kind of hard to say what you're up against. And my question is, what don't you like about the 6,000 grit? Are you not getting a high enough polish from there? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say, so if you're going to go with the single Shapton, I would probably say go with the 12,000 grit just to make sure that you're actually buying a stone that's going to give you a finer polish than the 6,000 grit yeah. mm -hmm. is uh, offering you. Yeah, that, that's a good tip that Mike brings up about the – the grit differences between brands, that's that's pretty important. I found out the hard way. Um, I bought a I have I had Norton combo stones that I bought when I first started woodworking and um, I wasn't feeling like I was getting a good enough polish, so I bought a, a Japanese stone, I don't remember the brand, um, at a woodcraft and it was a ten thousand grit and I wasn't getting any better of a polish and I went back to the guy and I said, Hey, what's up here? And he said, Oh well, it's probably a different grade and I said, Oh, I wish I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, so I, I would do what Mike said. Yeah. I mean, if I was only going to get one. But I would really recommend, though, of course, is to go one step further and just get three new stones and get them all in the same brand. Yeah. That's in, what I yeah. That's what I plan to do. I, I want to I want to get some of those the Shapton ceramic stones um, because I'm tired of the the soaking that I have to give my Nortons. It's kind of a pain and it's messy and. I have to that used to get set on the honeymooners a lot. What's that? <laughs> Getting tired of the soaking, I have to give Norton. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. getting a, a new set of stones of the same brand to Matt's point, um, you are assured that you're working through a logical sort of order of grits there. So that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, like like you could get a set of Norton combination stones for a fairly reasonable price, and you'd have you don't need the two twenty that it comes with, but you'd have a thousand, uh, four thousand, and eight thousand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or you could Actually, get, yeah, mine are two twenty thousand, four thousand, eight thousand. Yeah, yeah. And 
I guess the the Shapton Glassstones, the higher grits are more expensive, but yeah. the other ones are not. They're fairly affordable, right? Yep, that's I, what you I use. Yeah, that, isn't I, it? about the same as Norton. They they are really thin, so right. but they, they last longer. Cause they're they're really harder. Hard. They yeah. they wear longer. Um, on the other hand, the Nortons, especially if you buy the single grit stones, there's two sides. So you can flatten right. both sides and get twice as much sharpening done before you have to flatten the stone. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Um, the other thing is so the Shaptons being graded, you know, the equivalent grit is actually coarser than the Norton. On a Norton set, I would go 1,000, 4,008. Yeah. On the Shapton, I would go probably like 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 for the equivalent. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I went 148 Norton, then I ended up having to buy the 15,000 grit just to get a final polish. And that's where you start to get expensive is they have like the 15,000, even 30,000 grit, which right. are like, um, you know, I'm not sure what the benefit of that is for woodworking. That's the spinal tap grit. Um, you know, maybe for like, you know, sushi knives or something like that. Yeah. There's also, I would, I mean, my personal favorite water stones, because it's the ones I have, <laughs> are the Sigma Power Select stones, which... Uh, Chris Gochner rated best overall along with a, one or two others in his review of Waterstones from yeah. a few years ago. And if you, because they come from a guy in Japan, if you keep an eye on the exchange rate, you can get them for an unbelievably good price. Oh. And they come with uh, not just the Waterstones, but like a little pond to have them in when you're sharpening. And so it comes with a couple of different things. So it comes with a diamond plate, for example. Oh, for oh, flattening. Wow. For flattening. So you get oh, these cool. three stones, a diamond plate, and uh, a little water bottle, and this little water pond. And uh, I've, I, watching the exchange rate, I've seen it for well under $300. Yeah. Awesome. For, you know, to get around soaking, I used to keep my water stones in a little Tupperware thing, which wasn't a big deal. And now for traveling, I have one of those Norton kind of like fishing tackle box style things where the stones, they clamp into like a three-sided spinny rotisserie and they sort of soak in the water. So the 8,000 grit, which doesn't need to be soaked, that's always facing up. So the one and four are always partially submerged when I use it. So I just pull it out. It contains the mess and... You don't have to stop and wait and soak a stone for 10 minutes before you use it. Well, that's one of the things. Like my stones, I, I, I spoke to the guy and he said, these don't need to be soaked at all. They just You spritz them with water and that's how that's all they need. Okay. Yeah. Why yeah. don't you soak the 8,000? Uh, for the same reason you wouldn't soak Shaptons or other brands. It's just non-porous. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't need it. In fact, a lot of people you – know, I think it's a misnomer when, when people – refer to non-porous water stones as ceramic because every man-made water stone in essence is a ceramic stone meaning it's a fired matrix of clay and abrasive yeah so but you know the depending on the the type of clay the binder and how you fire it it can either be very porous to or not yeah. to non-porous so the shapton stones again you don't have to soak those you spritz them because it's not really going to absorb the water yeah they're all water stones because you use water to lubricate them. exactly yeah right. Yeah, and I would say in those stones I was talking about, the ones I own, I have the twelve thousand, the twelve hundred, the six thousand, and the thirteen thousand, and those do really nice job on A two steel. So cool, awesome. Let's move on to uh, two questions from Justin, and Justin says, "I'm new to woodworking, and I've been struggling with where I want my shop." I'm moving into my heated garage right now, and it seems like anyone who does something in a garage never has enough space. Can I hang items from my garage door? Not heavy items, just items like lightweight hand saws, sandpaper, etc. Of course, it would be set up so that if the garage door was to be opened, those items wouldn't fall. The second question is I have recently gotten a dust collection system, and I was wondering if I can place this in my basement. Of course, the basement is lower than my garage, so I was wondering if the unit would still work as effectively. So I think the the first garage door question, I think, needs addressing. Yeah, throw anything you want on the doors. (laughs) Just don't open them. I might question how often you need to open the doors. Right. Maybe if you have two, dedicate one for, let's say you never open it, and then you can just sort of treat it like a wall. Then you're okay. I don't think there are any weight issues involved. Well, we talked about this yesterday. One option that I had seen that one of our uh, former editors had uh, he had a two-car garage and he just basically tacked up a plywood wall uh you know in front of one and used that for hand tool storage and lumber storage and stuff that's what i would do if possible put up a a fake uh you know a temporary wall 
yeah, a, and a he, false wall. I, I believe he insulated behind it too, so made the space a little bit warmer. Mm-hmm. You know, but, in my shop, I pulled out two garage doors. I replaced one with a, a walkout door, and the other I just built some carriage doors. But that's only like you know once every two years I bring in a new piece of machinery or something like that, and I don't hang anything from it. But I have tables in front of it, and I stack lumber against it, so I, yeah. I treat it like a wall. Yeah, unless I'm getting a new table saw or taking an old table saw out. Yeah, so this is going to be a dedicated shop, which it sounds like it is. I mean, unless the garage door is the only door in and out, I just would not be opening it. You know, I mean, but who knows? Like me, I have to open up my garage door in the winter to get the the snowblower out. You know, it's even though my shop business is dedicated, it's uh, I still have to occasionally open those doors. Right. So I don't know if you caught that. I just got a new table saw. I don't know if you caught that. So did I. <laughs> so did Ben. So did Ben. I think Ben just got a new jointer too. Yeah, he did. That jointer has been through four editors here at the magazine. It's a classic. Yeah. We, should, we should have autographed it. The best thing I like about it is each editor that's owned it has paid more than the one before him. <laughs> uh, that's high value. That's right. It's got the fine woodworking logo. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it sounds like his his garage space is heated. So I mean, the garage doors must be insulated in some well, way. I would think, I would think so. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. And we there was one. Uh, if you look at some of our tips from the past, there have been different solutions for storage along garage doors. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't plan to open it again if you're going to hang something on it. Probably the best option is if you for small items tack a shoe. To the garage door for something like a handsaw, just tack a tack boot, a shoe. Yeah. and then you can just put it down in the boot. Yeah, yes, that'd work. That would work, wouldn't it, Mike? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, awesome. Now he talked about the dust collection, putting it into his basement. I guess he wants to pipe it up through into the garage. Um, I don't know from experience as to whether that's a a good idea or not. I don't see why. It I don't see why work. it wouldn't, but. Yeah, I think going up is harder than going down. You yeah. have to factor that into the size of your dust collector if you have yeah. really long vertical runs. But yeah, I would have to. Know. You know, I would recommend just talking to the dealer. You know, wherever you're buying the the unit from, and saying, "Hey, here's my plan. Does this have enough giddy up, yeah. so to speak, to to work for for what I want to do?" Yeah, I would think it's more an issue, not an issue of whether it's above or below the machinery, the but CFM. whether how far it is from the yeah. machinery. Because you know, obviously, the further you are from the machinery, the the more suction power you lose. Right. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, I don't think having to be below it, but who knows? I mean, we're not experts on yeah. that. Well, so. I also know like some dust collector manufacturers like Oneida, I believe they help you out in configuring dust collection systems for yes, your shop. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yep. So, and there are specialty places all across the country yeah. that, that work, you know, in setting up dust collection systems and, you know, they might be able to help you out too. Yeah. So, um, well, let's get to uh, our first segment. We have, as a special guest this episode, Brian Boggs, well-known chairmaker and furniture maker. Brian began his furniture-making career as a chairmaker in 1983, making contemporary chairs in the Appalachian style. His first article for Fine Woodworking was in issue number 78 on building a bent-back rocker, and that was in 1989. He's also appeared in home furniture in the 1990s. Um, Welcome, Brian. We have with me um, Mike Pekovich, the hey, Brian. Uh, our art director. Hey, Mike. And Matt Kenny, our uh, special projects editor. Hi, Brian. Oh, excellent. Hey, Matt. Uh, so first, you know, for folks, you know, for, the, for the minority that probably don't know you, um, I figured we'd talk a little bit about your beginnings. You started as a specialty chairmaker in a small town in Kentucky to basically creating your own furniture line in, in your new shop in Asheville, North Carolina. What's been your inspiration design-wise over the years, and how has that evolved into the product line that you've got going now? That's a good question, and, and I, I have to start by admitting that you know, I'm not always aware of what uh, my inspiration or, or what is influencing me. I'm, I'm just kind of uh, going along and, and making what... Uh, what comes to mind, but starting out, certainly uh, James Krenov was the first uh, eye-opening designer uh, that I encountered through his books that made me think seriously about getting into woodworking, mm-hmm. but there was just no way I could afford the tools that he worked with. Yeah, It was actually John Alexander's book, Make a Chair from a Tree, that really opened the door to 
a pauper's way of stepping into <laughs> woodworking, and that's why I started with chairs rather than something a little bit simpler. John's way of, of you know wrestling a tree apart and turning it into something that was beautiful and settable was uh, my obvious entry. Yeah. And, uh, my first job, I was able to, <laughs> I would say, outfit in qu- air quotes uh, for a <laughs> A total of fifty dollars for all the tools I had, wow. uh, not counting my chainsaw, which I already had. So there's just I don't think another furniture making shop that you could establish at that price. Yeah, yeah. So what uh, what do you think? You know, you've been a successful pro, obviously, and you know you grew from uh, a one man shop in Berea to kind of, it looks like a really large shop in uh, Carolina. Yeah, now. there's 11 of us here now. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, what, uh, you know, we get a lot of questions from folks who want or aspire to be professionals. What, what advice do you have for these, for these folks? Um, what are your secrets to success? You know, that's really hard. And I, I, I've been asked this before and there, there isn't a secret because you've got to approach this kind of thing like a ninja in in that <laughs> everybody's situation is different. Nobody's going to walk my trail and be a success because there were so many circumstances that fed what needed to grow at that moment. Right. I think everybody needs to just, if you're going to get into furniture making, be open to recognizing the opportunities that you are closest to. And, you know, work with what you've got. I, you know, I've taught a lot of classes internationally, and, and there's a tendency for people that want to get into woodworking to soak up as much knowledge as they can and collect as many tools as they can. And they, I, I've seen so many situations where there's this swamping of the individual with too much exposure to stuff, and, and that's the danger of the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, so many dang tools in their shop, they, there's no room to work. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot you can do with a half a dozen tools. And what needs to happen is you need to really learn about the material, but you also need to learn about yourself mm-hmm. and develop a relationship to what's in front of you. Right. And that might mean plywood. It might mean splitting out a, a limb and carving a spoon, whatever that is, there's a way in for you that's going to fit. And no one else is going to be able to recognize it as well as you can. Yeah. Well, actually, your mom might. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom still has some of my uh, first woodworking projects. I think um, before we uh, we got you on the air, we were, we were talking about the, some of the questions that we wanted to ask you. And Matt actually had probably the an answer that comes in line with what you're saying is just build nice stuff. Right. And and don't, tr- you know, uh, recognize where you are and stretch yourself a comfortable amount mm-hmm. with each new project. Don't, there's, there's so many times that I have taken on and, and many of my students have taken on something that's too big of a stretch because it's just intoxicating to think about making it. Yeah. And the stretch creates failure instead of going in bite-sized units into right. the next phase. Right. Had, Mike has a question Sorry, for I'm you. jumping in. Hey, uh, Brian, can you talk a little bit about the importance of design? Because I'm familiar with the John Alexander chairs, but your ladder back is kind of light years ahead of that. And it seems like, you know, your design sensibility is a really big part of your success. Um, and I'm not sure that makers wanting to go pro, I think they think more in terms of craftsmanship as opposed to design. But it seems like design is a really important thing as well. You, you're right on. Um, and I, you know, looking at my ladder backs, I, I, I'm flattered that you're, you're calling them light years ahead. They're a few years ahead. <laughs> I'm working on one now that I think is light years ahead. I mean, it's, I mean, that light years, that's just a fancy thing to sure. say. But I mean, it's, um, what, what I think is really important is to 
work as well as possible with the vocabulary that you have to transform the material into something that expresses what you visualize. Wow, perfect. Accurately. (laughs) And not have it be hampered by your technical limitations or work within your technical limitations to best express what's inspiring you. And what keeps happening and that I see happening in, in people's work is often an infatuation with a new technique, and then the new technique is driving the design instead of inspiration driving it. Or inspiration is driving a design, but the limitations of technique are keeping that design from being realized. And you can see it in the flow of a piece or in the feel of a piece or in the function of a piece and sometimes in the structural integrity of the piece. But design is... Um, so much more challenging to master than technique, but um, the technical development is what creates the landing point or the the infrastructure through which the good design can be born or good design can even be te- conceived. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my techniques have developed over the years, and I have to be reminded by people uh, things that I forget. Uh, <laughs> I'm working with a guy that's doing some CAD drawing for us on this, even on the, the new shaving horse, for example. Um, and I, you know, in, in getting into redesigning the shaving horse, I I had forgotten some things. You know, the shaving horse I've been using was 25 years old, mm-hmm. and I was totally happy with it, but when the idea came to rethink it and redesign it, I was really surprised with what was available, what opportunities for redesign, rethinking, and reshaping yeah, were revisiting. were available within that format through the lessons, techniques, and the design skills I had brought to the picture now that I didn't have 25 years ago. So that same just basic design of a horse it, it can... Uh, can be brought through a variety of different shops and come out a very different way depending on the limitations, the possibilities, the skills, and the vision of whoever it is that's involved. And and maybe all of them come out beautiful. But I think to me the, the mastery of design is about working cleanly and skillfully within the resources that you have and being able to see the design that is coming to you. And I, and I, I say that in a, in a funny linguistic way because I really do think that original design, if, you, if we can call something original, but, but, or, and good design is not something we think up. Right. It's something that happens in the course of being aware of what's going on around you. Yeah. Yeah. If you're developing your skills in a way that's inspired by the tools and by the materials and by your own relationship to all of that, then you're creating the groundwork or the scenario through which good design can move. Yeah. Well, that makes me want to sign up for one of your classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good pitch. Hey, um, you, you jumped to the, to the, the shave horse before I, uh, I can get to it. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit in terms of, you know, how the project evolved and, and what it's all about? It's basically a limited edition of your shaving horses that um, we're partnering with you to promote it, and, uh, and Lee Nielsen is, is selling them, right? That, well, no, we're, the sales are coming through us. Lee Nelson okay. is in a similar role as you. In, uh, you know, Kevin, who's our communications coordinator and web developer and, and marketing guru here, uh, had, was partly uh, brainstormed this idea, and I think it came out of uh, conversations about uh, – actually, I can't remember. Kevin's sitting here. Kevin, do you remember what, what's the first thing that – that spawned this idea? Yeah, 25 years. Well, it, it came about so organically that I don't know if it was one of us that thought of it, but in any case, we, we the idea emerged yeah. to uh, celebrate our 
collective anniversaries. I mean, I'm I'm 35 years into this now, and you guys are 40 years into it. Lee yeah. Nielsen's 35 years into it. The Shaving Horse was something I designed 25 years ago about this time, and right. so it just seemed like let's you know let's do <laughs> let's it. Make it, let's do something <laughs> fun with it, and and there's also some uh, has been some buzz on uh, different chats online right. about uh, Shaving Horse design and. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I've already done with that. I already designed that a long time ago. I'm using it. It's fine. It works great. And uh, with a little coat, you know, kind of push, I I was uh, asked to really rethink it. And th- there's actually, uh, I think, uh, a surprising amount of not spin, but, but real uh, core changes that uh, were were worked into this that I didn't even think that were I didn't I didn't think anything was needed but now that I use the new one I don't want to use my old one at all <laughs> you know the from the ergonomics that I've learned in the last 25 years yeah. to the my craftsmanship has improved and our shop is better at producing things and the the engineering that I've done in the last 25 years has fed some ideas that allow me to improve the the mechanics and and leverage uh, of the whole horse so right. um, so where, where can uh, where can folks go to to purchase the horses what's the is it uh, your website uh, shavinghorse.com we okay. it actually has its own website nice and there's we're selling plans for it um, oh, cool. for you know folks that really want to do it themselves and there will be some slight variations on the plans. I've been going over this with with Bruce, who's who's drawing this on on his uh, computer, because we can do things efficiently in this shop that wouldn't be very nice to ask somebody else to do. Right. <laughs> you know, we've got tricks and tools and systems here that allow things that are pretty impractical in most shops. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're modifying the plans a little bit, not functionally, but aesthetically and um, practically yeah. that make it more approachable for most woodworkers. That sounds like a fun, uh, a fun project. Hey, before, before we uh, let you go, we have a, uh, a regular segment that we do uh, where it's our all-time favorite technique of all time. I, this week, I had a question. Oh, Matt has one more question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Is that, do we have time for one do, more question? You have, you have time for one more question, Brian? <laughs> I've got time. I'm, I'm yours. Because <laughs> <laughs> what you were saying about the spoke shave uh, and how you thought initially, you thought, well, I've had this one for 25 uh, years. Shave horse. Shave horse. Shave sorry, and yeah. yeah, that's okay. Um, that there was nothing you thought you could do to improve it, but then you discovered there was. Um, and I just because I, 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 earlier I was thinking I'd, I would want to ask you: Is there any piece of furniture that you've made through the course of your career that you think is done that there's nothing else that you could do to it to improve it aesthetically or ergonomically because you make chairs? Um, do you or, or do you think there's you could still go back to anything? Even like I mean, for me, I think the, the ladder back chair is ergonomically heaven. And aesthetically, just beautiful. And I just wonder if you look at that chair and also think that's done. There's nothing else I could do to that. Or is there... I, um, I, I looked at that chair for years and felt that it was done. Uh, that was just my limited thinking, mm-hmm. or it wasn't time to do anything. And it, what seems to happen is, uh, I personally hit plateaus, and that I'll stay on for a while, or a design will hit a plateau, and I, I just don't see anything else to do with it but my skills and techniques and abilities have evolved now such that I have some radical improvements I would love to make on that chair in fact the whole redesign wow. um, it, it can be a lot better mm-hmm. uh, from a whole lot of standpoints and and actually there's there's a and everything about it. I mean, if, when you start with the format of, of a post and rung chair, you're already limited. And that's, I ran into that a long time ago. And, and that's what uh, got me into using a router because of 
you know, was chopping all my chisels or my mortises with a chisel, and yeah. that was my, my tool set was having a profound limitation on design. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we're even incorporating carbon fiber now in, in fiberglass. And, mm. Wow. Um, you know, metal is already in our outdoor line, but uh, I'm working on a, a, a new chair design that incorporates things that I've never worked with before, and then that feeds my thinking about the ladder back and mm-hmm. what the potential is for that. And, you know, a lot of things change possibilities change and ideas evolve and market changes uh, are impacted by the size of the shop, how many people we've got, the volume of work that we do, and therefore the investment that can go into the development of one new design. And one of the things that, that in, in looking back at the history of that ladder back chair is it evolved very slowly over time. Mm-hmm. But its next evolution is going to have to be radical. I'm not ready to just tweak it a little bit, which I, I could, but the way I produce each part needs to change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Look forward to seeing it, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big challenge. Because um, I have one of those, I have one, actually I have two of your chairs in my office, and uh, it's one reason that my boss likes to come down and have meetings with me because she likes the chairs. <laughs> You'll have to get one of the new ones. <laughs> uh, all right, let, let's get to the uh, the segment that I mentioned before. Um, it's kind of a fun thing where we talk about you know a favorite technique that we've that we're using in you know a piece that we're building lately. So it's uh, our all time favorite technique of all time for this week. Uh, do you have something in mind? I, I uh, looked at that note, and and it's a real struggle. Uh, there are two groups of techniques that have radically changed what we're able to do here and one is uh, template bandsaw curves and, and template bandsaw sima curves that uh, where we can now get uh, glue joint quality cuts in a precision sima curve that's a three-way compound orientation to another curve and that wow, that one beats mine. <laughs> that stuff that we can't get a CNC shop to do, wow. and that opens design potential that makes it really hard for me to sit here. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and it, part of that is uh, you know embracing the the fully housed double tenon, which I wrote about in an article yep. not that long ago with you all. Um, I think it was called the universal joint. Yes, but I think I was. Between that joint and the bandsaw sculpting potential, um, there's some really exciting designs ahead. And while I love sitting at the horse and shaving with my draw knife, it's, there's nothing I love more than that, really. But those aren't changing the scope of design in a way that excites me as much as the other two techniques are. And and if it's one of them, it's going to be the bandsaw technique. The the, the joinery could potentially be done by hand, but I don't want to give either one of them up. Right. It's just, it's allowing me to work fluidly the way wood is. And that, I think, is something seriously missing in our industry, in our tradition, a lot of it. Now, the Windsor, post and run, the split and shave kind of stuff, that, that is working with the way wood is, but in a very limited, um, within a very limited scope. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, great. That's uh, that's a sounds like a great article that, that we may want to cover at some point. <laughs> but, well, let me know. I'm I'm, uh, I'm still waiting to get uh, this one finished with you. I need a photographer down here. Well, we'll get uh, John Benson on the phone or on the on the plane rather. <laughs> yeah. <down> there, so. <laughs> Well, th- well I think we, 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 what happened. We tried to we had we tried to double up or triple up the photo shoot, and I couldn't do right. all of that together. Well, so it'll be worth uh, the, but, the one trip, you know, the one article. That's for sure. Well, thanks thanks for spending uh, uh, the time with us, Brian. It was a great conversation, great insight into design and and uh, what you're doing. It's it's uh, it's good to see how you're staying ahead of the game and you know staying innovative. It's great. It's been a lot of fun, and it's been fun talking to you guys. I'd be happy to do this again sometime. Great. Well, we'll we'll, we'll see you soon. Take Thanks, care. Brian. Okay. Thanks, Brian.
Have a good day. Thanks, Brian. Well, that was an awesome interview with <laughs> Brian Boggs. Yeah. Um, just like I said, it, you know, his conversation made me want to take one of his classes. That's for sure. Um, let's move on to our discussion about our all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. Do you want to start us, Matt? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can start. Uh, this is something I did uh, this past weekend, actually. Um, I've been making uh, a pair of tea boxes. They're identical. And uh, the tea box was uh, box 51 in my 52 box uh, deal that I did. Uh, is that on your website? I, yeah. I, well, I just got a website, Tom. That's awesome. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, you can see pictures of it there, but also I'm sure Ben will uh, post some. You could also see them on my Instagram account. Hmm. Um, what is what is your account? It's Kenny.Matt. Matt. Yes. Okay. Um, so, anyways, uh, this the this box has a, a base to it, and the base is made by with two mitered frames, one on the top and one on the bottom. And there's a plywood spacer uh, between them that separates them like two and a half inches. And at the cor- at each corner, after I've assembled these frames, I notch them. And then I glue in these little posts so that when the base is all done, it, you know, whatever side you're looking at it from, it looks like a complete little frame uh, with two verticals and two horizontals. Right. Now, uh, this is, you know, this is all small style work. So you can't really, I can't really reinforce that joint with a dowel or a mortise and tenon or anything. So they essentially, they just get glued in to these little notches that I cut. And uh, the first time I did it, I glued in these little legs with uh, Nexabond glue, mm-hmm. which is like a type of super uh, CA glue. And it worked really well. It's fine because you can sit there and hold pressure on it and keep it there for eight or ten seconds, and it's fine. You can move on. Okay. This time I wanted to use yellow glue uh, to do it. So I knew that I was going to need to clamp them in place. And the best way to clamp them would be from that outside corner because if you put pressure on that outside corner, it's going to get spread out at 45 degrees, which means the pressure is going to go directly onto – that joint between the surface of the little post or the leg and the notch, right? Yes. So I wanted clamping pressure directly on that outside corner. So what I came up with is uh, for the outside, uh, on the outside corner, I just took a piece of plywood and cut a 45-degree groove in it. Uh, took a V-groove bit, a 90-degree V-groove bit, and cut a channel or a groove in it. And that fits over the outside corner of the post and gives you a flat bearing surface Right. Okay. for the, uh, for the clamp. And protects that sharp corner. And protects yeah. the sharp corner. Um, <clears throat> then, but you also, I needed something on the inside of this frame assembly for the clamp to go against so that I didn't uh, dent anything. Right. So there I just took, uh, again, I took plywood, and what I did was cut a 45-degree f- angle uh, on two sides of it. So I created a little triangle. And so that little triangle fit into the inside corner. And then I had this grooved piece that fit over the outside corner. And I had flat bearing surfaces on each side. And so it was just boom, 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 and clamp bonk, it up. Bonk. And you got I got awesome clamping pressure uh, from this. That's awesome. I did see that on your feed. And um, I'd seen that problem before, but I'd never seen that solution where you're actually clamping from the inside with that little block. So the two blocks, what you're doing is you're creating two clamping surfaces, which are perpendicular. Parallel to each other. Parallel, but perpendicular in line to the pressure you want to apply to the joint. Yeah. Yeah. Really awesome. Yeah. So it worked fantastic. And it made, I mean, because I could have done that with tape. Uh, I could have done it with an outside call and tape. But, you know, clamps are just, I mean, that's why people use them because they're good at clamping stuff up, you know. So uh, the this really helped. And, uh, yeah, but I'm sure Ben will post a photo of it or a couple of photos of it on uh, the website. Or they could go. To, I happen to have an Instagram feed, by the way. It's Kenny what, Matt. Kenny Matt. And Tom, did, by the way, Tom, I want to. I have a website. What's the URL? Mekwoodworks.com. All right. Let's move on to uh, Mike's all-time 
favorite. Well, that was almost as good as like a three-axis Sima curve. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> Listen, if your technique involves something that only advanced mathematicians understand, it, it's a winner. Yeah, it's the winner. My, mine falls quite a bit short of that as well. But um, it's sort of a technique nested in a philosophy, which is the philosophy is for every project you make, try a new technique and buy a new tool. Mm-hmm. which I'd sort of gotten away from because a lot of my stuff is a little bit simple and a little bit repetitive. So um, not to say that you know I'm not taking baby steps here and there, but anyway. Arts and crafts furniture. <laughs> I'm making a rocking chair, which involves some curves. And in, in last episode, I talked about um, you know a foray possibly into steam bending. Well, I kind of went away from that uh, to bent lamination where I took a, some stock and sawed it into eighth-inch veneers and just and clamped them around a bending form. And it's actually the first time I'd done that. And it was like really, really cool. So that was like my new technique. I learned a lot. Um, the f- main thing I learned is you need a lot of clamps. You need a lot more clamps than you think you need. Um, so I went to Home Depot and I raided the clamp section for all of their C-clamps. So if you go to my local <laughs> Home Depot for a C-clamp, uh-uh, you're not going to find one. Um, <laughs> So it was cool. I came home with like two dozen C-clamps to kind of um, go with the C-clamps I already had. And one of the problems um, kind of with what we do with the magazine that I was sort of kind of ran into with this is that a lot of times we, we try to explain a technique really thoroughly in the magazine. But one of the axioms is that the more thoroughly you explain a technique – the more difficult you make it appear to be. And I think I kind of succumbed to this because I thought, oh, bent laminations, it's really hard and blah, 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 and, and clamping calls and bending forms and, and you know, axes of, of you know, clamping um, force and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like spring back. No, you just, <laughs> you just do it. You make a form, you drill holes in it to fit the clamps in, you get something on top, you put some glue on everything, you make a mess and you clamp it up. Yeah. Done. Yeah. And then you fit the parts to the shape as, as you work. Right? Yeah. So anyway, it was it was really fun and I enjoyed that technique. And now it's like, you know, cool. It's a, like Brian said, you know, you increase your techniques and then those techniques can inform your design. Um, right. So that was kind of um, that was kind of a cool thing. So, you know, technique is it's either buying lots of clamps or uh, <laughs> bent laminations. So uh, I have three responses to that. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> Let's count down. <laughs> Response the first. Yes. No. Respond, well, so we talked, because you and I talked about this before you actually did it. Yeah. And I just want to I thought that I had you convinced to use a vacuum bag. And then I show up at your place, I think on Thanksgiving, and you have all these bent lamb setups with clamps galore. And yeah. I, was, I was dashed. <laughs> I was so bummed okay. out. Number one, Home Depot didn't have a vacuum press system. Mike, and number two, as if you don't have access to a vacuum press system. I own two. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, one you use for your vegetables, right? Yeah. No, that's. I mean, that is a, a viable alternative. It's one of those things where it's hard to dive into a whole vacuum press system to do your very first bend lamination. That's, so, but. But this comes to my second point, which yes. is a point you also made. By you just time. do it. And, it, you know, because the, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, okay, in theory, in a wood shop, you could cut off your hand. But, you know, most likely, <laughs> you're, nothing really bad's going to happen if you just try something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that always works out. I can't wait to tell my 16 year old that. <laughs> I said, well, here's one thing. In the wood shop. Is when I was clamping this thing up, there was more squeeze out than I've ever seen in every project I've ever made in my career of woodworking. Cumulative amount of squeeze out was less. What happens in a vacuum bag when all this squeeze out goes in there? How can you possibly get this thing apart? Well, I've never had that much squeeze out. I think you're applying too much glue. (laughs) That's quite possible. And then, you know, the third thing that what you're saying, because you said every time you have a new project, it's tr- buy a new tool yeah. and try a new technique. Yeah. And one of the things I thought that one of the things I found interesting that Brian said, because he said he said this was you either have to improve, uh, learn new techniques and get new tools so you can do better design. Right. Or 
you have to learn to design better with the tools and techniques you have. Yeah, I think they go hand in hand. I yeah. think that's why designing furniture is the most difficult thing in the world to do because you have to be a good technician in order to be a good designer. And you can't design unless you understand sort of the engineering of making things out of wood. It's like mm-hmm. you can't be one without the other. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. We're going to get a letter from that one pediatric neurosurgeon. <laughs> that one? You just said woodworking was the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> and there's that one guy out there that listens to us. He's a pediatric <clears throat> neurosurgeon. He's going to write in. Oh, okay. Well, I think the order of complexity probably goes from furniture making to musical instrument making to stair building to boat building. I would say like building a boat out of wood is probably the ultimate form of art. Accomplishment, yeah. Yeah, stair building is impressive. I mean, like the big curved stairs and all that. Right. Yeah, not the not the straight. No, stairs. like the three dimensional. Oh, no. like in space, the whole you know railing mm-hmm. spiraling up into yeah the heavens. Yeah. Speaking of heavens, here's mine <laughs> favorite <laughs> all time technique. Um, mine actually kind of grew out of a mistake. Unfortunately, um, I know I'm beating this cabinet project to death, but... Are you building a cabinet? I Are you? Is it, is it <laughs> on a stand? <laughs> it's on my Instagram feed. Um, I make slow progress, but I was working on the drawer pocket over the um, over a long extended weekend, and um, I discovered, unfortunately, that my drawer opening was tapered, and I I thought I had everything squared up, but it, so the opening was wider than the back of okay. the open of the drawer pocket. So do you have a center divider or something like that? No, yeah, oh. I, have, I have a center divider that was actually perfect, perfectly square. Huh. So it was only tapered on one side. I messed up somewhere. Okay. I don't know where, but anyway, I messed messed up the install. So my idea was to build a, a traditional dovetail drawer to stick in that pocket, and this little error, even though it was slight was enough to make the pocket too wide. So I um, wound up deciding, all right, I'm going to use sliding dovetails to attach the drawer front, and then I can build out drawer guides to kind of shim out the, oh. the one side. And so that's what I did. The The one side, once I had the drawer built, I put it in the opening, and I put a guide on the side that was perfectly square, installed that, and then just inserted – the drawer and kind of planed away the other side guide until the drawer went all the way in and it was pretty successful time consuming as all get up you know so it was wider at the back than at the front it was wider at the front on one side so there's a vertical divider that was perfectly Mm -hmm. you know perfectly running front to back but i messed up the the outside of the the case and And it was wider it was wider it was can't it was tilted i guess you know wider at the front Mm -hmm. so um, I just had to keep planing away a little bit of material. And then I've got a, a perfect fit. And I followed Chris Gochner's, um article on doing side hung – I think it was side hung drawers. And I adapted that with um, – on the drawer guides, I just made this – you know some slotted holes and I was able to dial in the reveal once I had it running oh, front cool. to back. Because they become your stops against yeah. your wider right. drawer front. Right. And so Very I cool. got, it, got it inset just where I wanted to. Um, screwed down the guides perfectly, and now I've got this sweet sounding drawer. I love that, you know, when it goes mm-hmm. very nice. So, um, I'm excited, even though you know it's a result of a mistake, but it was I wasn't angry about it because it, it allowed me to kind of just use a hand plane. Kind of just it's really that's one thing I do like about woodworking a lot more now that I've gone into hand tools is the quietness. And even though I made a mistake, fixing it was not that unpleasant, right. you know? So it was a fun thing to, to work on. Cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, did you guys know that um, 37% of all woodworkers can only count to nine and a half? Okay. Well, yeah, think about that. <laughs> I think uh, – I think we're going to have to start wrapping up this puppy. (laughs) (laughs) You'll figure it out. Hey, one thing I wanted to mention was uh, the fact that we partnered with the Highland Woodworker web TV show to help uh, Chuck Brock and his team develop and deliver content. The latest episode, number 28, is live now, and it features one of our own, John Tetro, our associate art director. And John is uh, a featured 
guest on the show, and he demonstrates how he works with reclaimed wood. It's a really cool um, quick technique video. So he, he explains it really well, um, and he's very talented. So check it out. Yeah, you, you can, think of stuff from reclaimed lumber as being rustic, or you yeah. just sort of bang it together. But um, John has really great methods for maintaining sort of the patina of the surface while still building really square accurate joinery. Yeah. And his strategies for that are really smart. And you start to think about the problems. Yeah, I got some boards that aren't exactly flat and I don't want to surface them to remove the surface, but how do I build something square? Yeah, mm -hmm. just square up the joinery. Yeah. And, and he, he demonstrates a, in a quick way how to do it. It's really quite nice. Yeah. Uh, you can check out the episodes and all the episodes rather at the Highland Woodworker com, And uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode. Remember to send your questions and comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. And please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on the web at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. Brian Boggs, well-known chairmaker and furniture maker. Brian Boggs Chairmakers. We're either on the other line or we're back in the shop. We offer tours at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday and Saturday by appointment only with at least two days advance notice. Again, thank you for calling. We will call up. you back as soon as... I guess we should have called we, it 2 o'clock. We, <laughs> we could have got a free tour. Now we have... At least Ben has something to use at the end. Yeah. <laughs>